Okay, today we're going to be talking about the Civil War. And of course, uh, 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 the Civil War is uh, uh, America's greatest tragedy uh, uh, and greatest triumph at the same time. Uh, and it's unfortunately a function of a survey course that, of course, you could spend an entire course on the Civil War, and I do spend an entire course uh, on the Civil War. I teach a seminar on the American Civil War that I hope uh, to give uh, uh, again next year. Uh, but uh, here's, a, here's an attempt to actually capture the Civil War in one lecture. Not an easy thing to do. As I said, uh, uh, it's America's greatest tragedy and the greatest triumph at the same time. The tragedy is obvious. Over 600,000 uh, American dead, and obviously everyone who gets killed in the Civil War is an American, whether they fight for the North or the South. Uh, over one million total casualties, if you, uh, if you include the wounded. That is uh, 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 more than... Uh, Every other war in the United States combined. I think. I think actually we sort of went over that number with uh, with Vietnam. But if you think about it, if you have the Revolutionary War, the War of eighteen twelve, the Mexican uh, War, the Spanish American War, World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, the Gulf War, uh, uh, and now the war in Iraq and, and Afghanistan, and put all the total casualties together, they will only exceed the total number killed in the Civil War by by very little. By you know by maybe. 80 or 90,000. That's how many people got killed in the American Civil War. 2% of the American population was killed in the Civil War. That's not 2% of the soldiers. That's 2% of the population. Uh, uh, the equivalent would be about uh, losing 5 to 6 million in a war today. That's how many people got killed. There were more Americans killed in one day at the Battle of Antietam that we're going to be discussing uh, during this lecture than in the entire Revolutionary War. That's one day. Uh, you also have the tragedy of the entire destruction or total destruction of the southern social system and the southern economy. It took over a hundred years for the South to recover uh, uh, economically uh, from the Civil War. It was almost frozen in time from the 1860s really until the 1960s. Uh, as a result of the Civil War, the South continued as a colony of the North, and we talked about that uh, a couple of lectures ago when we talked about the economic system of the South. It was after the Civil War still a colony of the North, but now it was a poor colony of the North. But of course, the Civil War was a great triumph as well. Uh, uh, through it, America finally began to live up to its ideals of freedom and equality, or at least started to live up to its ideals. Uh, in fact, uh, the United States almost became a new country with new rules, uh, because the triumph of the Union in the Civil War didn't just restore the United States to where it was before the Civil War started in 1861, but by destroying the institution of slavery, it set up a nation uh, uh, devoted, at least uh, uh, in principle, to equality under the law. And it set the stage for what I consider to be the most important constitutional amendment in the Constitution, and of course they're all important, but in my view, the 14th Amendment, uh, which uh, provides for equal protection of the laws uh, and due process of law, uh, 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 is the most important. Uh, and without the Civil War, there would be no 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment is really the amendment that made the Civil Rights Revolution of the 1960s possible. And so the Civil War was important uh, for, you know, for that as well. What, whatever steps we've taken uh, as a modern society 
towards equality and freedom for all people were made possible by the Civil War. But at the start of the Civil War, very little of this was clear. Northern war aims after the South seceded uh, were much more limited to preserve the Union, to uphold the preeminent power of the federal government, and more broadly, to prove that democratic self-government could work. But among these aims was not, except for some abolitionists, to build a new society based on freedom with the emancipation of the slaves as its centerpiece. But by late 1862, as we will see, this would change. Now, what were the Southern aims for the war? Well, independence. They viewed this as a fight for their independence. States' rights. They viewed this, of course, as, a, uh, uh, as an attempt to preserve the rights of the states, the individual states, uh, uh, against the federal government. Liberty. In the 1776 sense that uh, uh, government is invalid, that is not based on the consent of the governed. And, perhaps most importantly, slavery. And, despite the disclaimers, and I've talked about this before, this is the real aim of the war for the South, to preserve the institution of slavery and hopefully to extend it. Now, what proof do I have for that? that assertion that the Civil War was really about slavery for the South, uh, an assertion that many Southerners even today would take issue with. Well, I'll offer two elements of proof that this was the case. First, what was known as the prisoner exchange controversy during the Civil War. Now, by 1863 and 1864, black soldiers were fighting against the Confederacy for the Union. And when they were captured by the Confederacy, uh, uh, they were sent often back to slavery, or into slavery if they had been free blacks in the North. The South refused to treat these captured black soldiers as they would white POWs, meaning putting them into a POW camp. Now, prisoner exchanges with the North broke down over this issue because Lincoln insisted on equal treatment for black uh, uh, soldiers. And thus, after the prisoner exchanges broke down, the South didn't get their POWs back themselves, the southern POWs who were in northern prisoner of war camps. And this hurt the South a lot more than the North because the South was short on manpower. The South desperately needed their own POWs to come back so that they could uh, replenish the, uh, uh, the Confederate armies. So it seems to me that the South was willing to lose the Civil War rather than discard the idea that blacks belonged in slavery and were less than human. They were willing to lose the war because they didn't have the manpower rather than to admit this principle and treat black POWs equally. The other element of this proof, as far as I'm concerned, involves the question of arming slaves who fought for the Confederacy and giving them their freedom. Now, this issue was constantly present uh, during the Civil War. Should the slaves themselves be armed by the Confederacy, uh, they could go into the Confederate Army, uh, uh, and if the war concluded successfully, or even if it didn't, they would get their freedom. That would be the deal. 
Well, the South refused to do this throughout the war. Uh, it reluctantly authorized the arming of slaves uh, without the promise of emancipation uh, at the very, very end of the war, but did this very, very reluctantly. And once again, the South is very short of personnel, very short on, uh, on, on enlisted men. Uh, they could have used these troops. But it seems the South, the Confederacy, would have rather lost the Civil War than free the slaves. It was the idea that the Confederacy without slavery was not the Confederacy. That this was more than a war for independence. Because if it had been just a war for independence, then anyone who wanted to help the cause would have been welcome. But there was this sense that if you arm the slaves and free the slaves, that the Confederacy, without the institution of, the, of slavery, is pretty much just like the North. It's not worth it. So the idea of slavery for blacks, at least in my view, is at the very heart of the Confederacy and of the war effort, no matter uh, how much uh, uh, Southerners try to mask that. Now, whatever the Northern or Southern uh, war aims were, well, what chances did each have of achieving those aims? What were the relative advantages of the North and the South at the start of the Civil War? Well, for the North, uh, 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 the North had an advantage in population. Their population was uh, uh, over two times that of the South. Uh, the North had an advantage in the size of its armies. Again, more than twice the size of the Southern armies. Uh, a tremendous advantage in industrial capacity. About 90% of the nation's industrial capacity was located uh, in the North. The North also had a tremendous advantage in capital, in money. 80% of the nation's capital was located in the North. As you might imagine, the South started to suffer from inflation very, very quickly during the war because it, uh, it just basically printed money that wasn't backed by anything. And also, uh, the North had a tremendous advantage in railroad mileage. About 75% of the railroad mileage in the United States was located in the North. And finally, as it would turn out, although this was not apparent at the very beginning, the North would have a tremendous advantage in political leadership uh, with Abraham Lincoln over Jefferson Davis. But the South had advantages too. The South had an advantage in the fact that it was a military-oriented society. Uh, 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 not necessarily a militaristic society, but a society where uh, a career in the military was an honored career. And thus, there was a high Southern percentage in the army at the time of the start of the Civil War. There was always a Southern tradition of sending uh, Southerners to West Point. So there were a lot of Southern military uh, personnel. Uh, uh, this is also a society that is much more used to, Southern society, uh, 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 shooting guns and riding horses, which are two of the things you have to do uh, in 1861 if you want an effective army. Southern society was also a more obedient society. We talked about the hierarchy uh, in Southern society that was basically lacking in the North. And if you want to win a war, you have to have people to obey. And so they had, uh, uh, they had an advantage, I think, in terms of that. When you read the Killer Angels, you'll see uh, 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 how uh, Southern uh, foot soldiers were very, very obedient. They would basically do whatever you wanted them to do. Uh, they idolized Robert E. Lee and pretty much would do anything for him. That's a tremendous advantage. 
The South also had the advantage of having to only defend its territory, while the North had to occupy that territory and subdue that territory. So fighting on the defensive, just, uh, uh, just having the goal of expelling invaders, and obviously if you look at a map, there's a lot of land area in the South. That's an advantage too. They don't have to invade the North, they just have to stop the North from invading their homes. And there was also, I think, an advantage in morale. Because with the North invading the South, you have the moral advantage of defending your own homes. Uh, you know that's something that uh, that people in the in the South could you know could rally around. Uh, even if you didn't own slaves, even if you were just an upcountry yeoman, uh, uh, even if you didn't like the planter class, the Yankees were coming, and you had to defend your homes, and that gives you a tremendous advantage uh, 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 in morale. Now, the military aspects of the Civil War. It's uh, obviously uh, impossible to uh, summarize the Civil War uh, militarily uh, in one lecture. There have been some 65,000 books uh, uh, written about the Civil War. That is more by far than any other subject in American history. But I think, in a way, to shorthand it, that the story of the Civil War militarily can be traced in the story of six battles, which I will talk about. Now, through these battles, we can see the pattern of early Union defeats, but by the midpoint of 1863, the beginning of the turning of the tide and the beginning of a northern victory. And we can indisperse uh, these battles uh, uh, into the military story uh, of, of the uh, Civil War. So let me write down the names of these battles on the, uh, on, on, on the board, these six battles that I'm going to be, uh, the six most important ones that I, I think uh, are, are the most worth, worth talking about. First, first bull run, there were two bull runs, so uh, uh, the, the first one. Antietam. Fredericksburg. Chancellorsville, let's see, did I skip one here? Let's see. Oh, no, I didn't skip it. Gettysburg, of course, and we'll be talking more about this on Friday, and Vicksburg. First bull run is uh, July 1861. Antietam is September 1862. Fredericksburg is December 1862. Chancellorsville is May 1863. And uh, Gettysburg and Vicksburg are both in July 1863. So I think if you if just looking at these six, you can pretty much get the sense of the. Uh, of, of, of the military progress of the Civil War. So we'll start with First Bull Run. Uh, after the Confederacy seceded, after the Upper South seceded in the wake of Fort Sumter, uh, uh, that's North Carolina, uh, uh, Tennessee, uh, Arkansas, and, uh, uh, and of course Virginia, uh, uh, Union troops began to form. Uh, 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 this was not a country with a large standing army, uh, and so Lincoln had to ask for 75,000 volunteers to crush the rebellion, which he got. And a good number of those troops marched west 
uh, in July 1861 out of Washington, D.C. to destroy the Confederate Army uh, at Bull Run, the town of Manassas, Virginia, which is now just a suburb of, uh, of Washington, D.C., uh, uh, now, the Union Army uh, expected a quick and easy uh, victory. Uh, uh, well, at least the northern public did. And, and since this battle was so close to Washington, D.C., uh, a lot of people packed picnic baskets, got into their horses and buggies, and they rode out to watch the battle, as if you would run a, ride out and watch a sporting event. And at first, seemed, things seemed to go well uh, for the Union Army. Initial success. But... Later in the day, there was a strong Confederate counterattack led by a general named Thomas Jackson, who would be forever after known as Stonewall Jackson, because he stopped the Confederate retreat, uh, uh, and another Confederate general, uh, actually just before he himself was killed, pointed to Jackson and said, there stands Jackson like a stone wall, you know, follow him. So Jackson led this great counterattack and drove the Union troops back to Washington in chaos and humiliation, made even worse by the fact that fleeing civilians who had packed their picnic lunches got in the way of the retreat because they were retreating as well. And the humiliation of First Bull Run set the pattern for the first two years of the war. Numerically superior Union troops humiliated by better-led tactically superior Confederate armies. Confederate leaders like Robert E. Lee, the general-in-chief of the army, uh, 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 Thomas Stonewall Jackson, uh, Jeb Stuart, uh, the great cavalry leader, and others, became legendary during these first two years of the war for outmaneuvering and outsmarting uh, uh, and uh, out, outgutting, basically, uh, Union generals. And during this time, Confederate troops got the reputation for superiority over Union troops in bravery and fighting ability and tenacity. That's saying that ten rebels could lick one Yankee. And a succession of Union generals were humiliated by the Confederates. General Irvin McDowell was the commander at Bull Run. Uh, he was humiliated. Then succeeded by uh, George McClellan, uh, uh, a, uh, a, a general who drilled his men and trained his men, but never would use his men. Uh, uh, you know, he was, he was one of those classic uh, talk-in-the-talk-but-not-walking-the-walk kind of generals who trained his men, but when the time for battle came, he almost always hesitated, always demanded more troops, or said he couldn't attack, or found, it, found an excuse, or blamed Lincoln, or whatever. McClellan uh, uh, was, was a timid general. Uh, 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 then uh, he was succeeded by Ambrose Burnside, who was humiliated at Fredericksburg. I'll talk about that in, uh, 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 in, in a few minutes. Uh, if you want to know where the word sideburns comes from, uh, come from they come from Ambrose Burnside, who had these very, very large mutton chop uh, sideburns. Uh, 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 when I first got here uh, to, uh, to Lawrence, uh, I actually taught the Civil War course to uh, Ambrose Burnside's great, 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 great granddaughter which is sort of a, a, you know, a, neat, a neat thing. It was hard to tell her that her great-great-great-great-grandfather was a screw-up in virtually every single thing that he touched. It wasn't just Fredericksburg. Wherever Burnside was, there was always a screw-up. Uh, uh, and then finally, uh, uh, Burnside as, uh, was succeeded as the leader of the Union armies by Joseph Hooker. And if you want to know where the word Hooker comes from, that also comes out of the Civil War. 
Uh, some great stuff I'm, I'm teaching you here. Uh, uh, Hooker was humiliated by, uh, by Lee and Stonewall Jackson uh, at, uh, at Chancellorsville. So that's the pattern. Uh, 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 a succession of union leaders humiliated and outmaneuvered by, by basically by, by Lee and Jackson. Now, after the Union under George McClellan almost took Richmond in May and June 1862, which would have ended the war, but didn't due to McClellan's reluctance to press the attack and throw his troops in, uh, and also the great generalship of Robert E. Lee, Lee himself went on the defensive uh, offensive, moving to the north into Maryland uh, in September 1862. Now, when he got to Maryland... Uh, uh, McClellan, who was basically chasing him, trailing him to try to intercept him, uh, McClellan got a gift from heaven. He found, or his troops found, an actual copy of Lee's orders, his marching orders and his strategy, uh, uh, his deployment plans. Uh, 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 they, were, they were found by a Union colonel uh, uh, in a haystack wrapped around uh, a bunch of cigars. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, basically what that meant is that McClellan, uh, uh, in September 1862, had Lee's playbook. Uh, uh, I once asked uh, my advisor in grad school, the great Civil War historian James McPherson, what the odds are, were on that happening. And he said something like 100,000 to 1. You know, in the fog of battle and the confusion of battle, to, to actually find the plans uh, uh, of the opposing general, to have them dropped in your lap, is probably about 100,000 to 1. But still, even knowing what Lee was doing, McClellan was slow to attack and gave Lee a chance to regroup and the armies met in a vicious one-day battle on September 17, 1862, outside the town of Sharpsburg in western Maryland on Antietam Creek, which is our second battle. Now, the Battle of Antietam was the bloodiest single day in American history, even bloodier than September 11th. 6,000 dead in one day on both sides, 23,000 total casualties, including uh, killed, wounded, and, uh, and captured. Uh, I've seen this battlefield, and I've seen where the soldiers were fighting, and there's a real chilling quality about it. Has anybody ever seen Antietam? Okay. There's a real quiet, uh, there's a quiet grandeur to the battlefield. It's not like Gettysburg where all these people, it's very quiet, but there's a real chilling aspect to it. Uh, 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 there's a bridge across a creek that you can, a very, very narrow little creek, uh, uh, and uh, the, uh, the battle raged back and forth, basically frontal assaults by the Union and Confederate troops across this very, very narrow bridge. And you can see, you know, what the carnage would have been like, because it's a real narrow bridge and they fought for hours uh, over that bridge. Now, after the battle ended, uh, uh, Lee had to retreat uh, back to Virginia. Uh, and in that sense, it was a victory for McClellan. Uh, but the opportunity for McClellan to destroy Lee's army and end the war had been missed, even though he had his plans. Now, there's an irony here. Escaping destruction in September 1862, may have been the worst thing for the Confederacy, not the best, as far as slavery was concerned. Because as the Battle of Antietam was being fought, Abraham Lincoln was about to take one of the most momentous steps in American history, freeing the slaves in his Emancipation Proclamation. So 
we will digress from military history briefly at this point to see how the North, which went to war in April 1861, primarily to preserve the Union and not to end slavery, how the Civil War had become, by late 1862, uh, a war to turn the war into a crusade for human freedom. Now, the road to Abraham Lincoln's issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation is uh, another one of what I call the right thing for the wrong reasons, or the right thing for morally indifferent reasons, uh, in which American history seems to be filled. We always seem to be doing right things for rather uh, ambiguous or sometimes even uh, uh, unambiguously immoral or self-interested reasons. In 1861, the North and Abraham Lincoln were still willing to promise the continuation and the protection of slavery in the South. And, and Lincoln was willing to do this even after secession, if the South would just come back. But by 1862, as the war was progressing, it became clear to Lincoln and to uh, Northern military leaders uh, 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 and eventually to the Northern public that the best way to hurt the Confederacy uh, was to hurt the Confederate civilians at home. And the best way to do this would be to take away the Confederacy's productive capacity. And the best way to do this, of course, would be to take away their slaves, because that's their productive capacity. That would be like destroying the machinery in a factory. And so, in the latter part of 1861 and early 1862, as it became clear that this would be a long war, a hard war, and finally a total war, it also became clear to Abraham Lincoln that a blow to slavery was a military blow against the Confederacy and a way to save Union lives and win the war. And so, during this period, the Union inched closer and closer to a direct blow against slavery. It started small. In uh, May 1861, a Union general named Benjamin Butler, who was in Virginia at the time, refused to return slaves who had escaped from plantations and run to the Union lines. He refused to return these slaves, saying that they were contraband, contraband of war. He didn't free the slaves, officially, but he just refused to re return them to their slave owners. They were contraband of war. Then, in August 1861, Congress passed the Confiscation Act, the first Confiscation Act, which said that the federal government could seize all property, including slaves, that were directly being used in the war effort. So it inches a little closer to emancipation. Then, in March 1862, Congress said that there would be no return of escaped slaves, uh, uh, even if they were escaping from states that were still loyal to the Union. And there were three of those. Uh, Missouri, Kentucky, and Maryland uh, were slave states, but they did not secede from the Union. So slavery was still legal there, uh, uh, even though they were, uh, they were still in the Union. And finally, in July 1862, Congress passed the second Confiscation Act that said that federal troops could seize property, including slaves, uh, of all Confederates, whether they were directly being used in the war effort or not. Anything they found, they could seize. And finally, Lincoln realized that a blanket emancipation order 
of all slaves in the South would be the best way to hurt the Confederate war effort. He waited until the Union had won a victory, otherwise it would have looked ludicrous. And that victory was at Antietam, as I mentioned, sort of a partial victory, not a clear-cut victory, but Lincoln would take what he could get at this point. And he announced the Emancipation Proclamation in September 1862. Now, the Emancipation Proclamation, which would take effect on January 1st, 1863, was tied to the Union war effort. It specifically only applied to slaves in areas which were under rebellion, meaning it did not apply to the loyal slave states that had not seceded. It did not free any slaves in Maryland, in Missouri, or in Kentucky. It also did not apply to southern areas that were under federal control. In other words, they were not in rebellion. Uh, 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 Even uh, by the end of 1862, there were portions of the South that were under Union control. Uh, uh, Most of Tennessee, uh, most of Louisiana, uh, even some parts of Virginia were under federal control. It didn't free any slaves in in those areas either. Now, the Emancipation uh, uh, Proclamation was issued as an executive order. It was not passed by Congress. You know, it was, it was, it was issued as an executive order as, you know, as a commander-in-chief would do in times of war. It was the president's war power that justified the Emancipation uh, Proclamation. And it was, it was phrased as a war measure. Uh, uh, there was no ringing language in the Emancipation Proclamation. If you look it up, uh, it, it, it's been described as reading like a bill of lading, and it's very, very unemotional. Uh, 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 it doesn't talk about human freedom. It just says this is a military order. Uh, 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 if you are in rebellion in uh, in, in in a few months, in ja- January first, eighteen sixty-three, uh, your slaves are hereby freed. Uh, and of course, the South laughed at that. First of all, they were not coming back into the Union, uh, uh, at least uh, not peacefully, uh, uh, and uh, uh, they, in a sense, were taunting. Uh, Lincoln, because uh, someone once said about the Emancipation Proclamation is that it freed no slaves in areas uh, that the Union controlled that it could have freed slaves in, and it freed slaves, or purported to do so, in areas where it could not, because the South was in rebellion. The North did not control those areas. So the South viewed it as a cowardly uh, uh, act. Now, while Lincoln is motivated here uh, uh, primarily uh, by practical military concerns, he wants to win the war, he's, he's also motivated, although he doesn't articulate this in the Emancipation Proclamation itself, by moral concerns. It's clear that by late 1862, Lincoln had decided that America could not go back to the nation that it was in April 1861, a nation with slavery. But Lincoln understood that it was time to build a new America, a different America, one which took the words equality and liberty much more seriously and tried to put them into practice for all Americans. While Lincoln did not articulate this in the words of the Emancipation Proclamation, he did do so later, in November 1863, when, on the Gettysburg battlefield, in his legendary Gettysburg Address, Lincoln at long last identified universal freedom and equality as northern war aims, setting new standards for Americans to attempt to reach in the post-war years, standards it has not even fully attained even today, but standards that at least exist for us as a nation. So, once again, 
America does the right thing for morally ambiguous reasons. But however it was arrived at, the Emancipation Proclamation turned the Civil War into not just a war for union, but a war for human liberation. Now, to return to the Battle of Antietam in September 1862. Now, this battle, which, as I said, made the Emancipation Proclamation possible, had its own delicious irony. Antietam was a qualified Union victory, uh, making the Emancipation Proclamation politically viable. Lincoln was able to issue it. But had McClellan acted on his huge advantage and destroyed Lee's army and ended the Civil War right then and there, the South might have been able to rejoin the Union with slavery intact. Lincoln, uh, on, with the South on the verge of coming back into the Union because Lee's army was destroyed by McClellan, uh, he may not have dared to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. It was still early enough so that, they, that, that it's possible that North and South could say, well, let's just go back to the way things were. Come back into the Union, you can still have slavery. No slavery in the territories, but slavery in the South. So as it turned out, at least in my view, Lee's escape and the Confederacy's escape at Antietam, the battle uh, that could have destroyed the Confederacy if McClellan had been competent but did not, it actually doomed the South in the long run. It made it lose by winning, so to speak, because it set up two and a half more years of relentless, brutal civil war that eventually destroyed Southern society and with it, slavery. And so, McClellan's incompetence at Antietam, he had Lee's plans and he still blew it, set the stage for the birth of the modern American nation as we know it today. Just another example of the great law of history, the law of an unintended consequences that we can see running through history, uh, American history at least, over and over again. So, after Antietam, the Civil War ground on with more and more disasters for the Union cause. There was Fredericksburg in December uh, 1862, where attacking Union troops moving uphill, this is the, uh, the battle that Ambrose Burnside with the sideburns uh, commanded, uh, attacking Union troops uh, 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 going up a hill outside of Fredericksburg, Virginia, uh, 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 were mowed down like wheat. The, uh, uh, the Confederates were dug in behind a low stone wall and just uh, blasted them, uh, blasted them to pieces. I don't know. Has, has anybody ever seen the Fredericksburg battlefield? Okay, Nicholas, you saw that. Okay, if your reaction was similar to mine uh, when I saw it, uh, my reaction was, "What was he thinking?" What was Burnside thinking? You're going uphill. Uh, uh, you've given the Confederates a long time to dig in. It's you know it's like a turkey shoot basically. You know it's it's pretty much open ground and it's uphill. Uh, it was it was a very very ill-advised uh, 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 attack. As you might imagine, there were terrible Union casualties and a demoralizing defeat uh, 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 for the uh, for the Union. When Lincoln uh, uh, when Lincoln heard of the news of that battle, he said, "If there is a place worse than hell, I am in it." Very very demoralizing uh, defeat. But it got worse. 
at Chancellorsville in May 1863, uh, 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 Robert E. Lee split his already outnumbered army. He was always outnumbered uh, 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 in a wilderness area west of Fredericksburg. Uh, Fredericksburg is, uh, uh, is, is to the east of Chancellorsville. Chancellorsville is basically a wilderness area. Uh, so uh, Lee splits his army in that wilderness, uh, 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 and, uh, 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 and Jackson... The other side, Thomas, you know, Stonewall Jackson. The other side of uh, Lee's army surprised Joe Hooker of Hooker fame uh, uh, at Chancellorsville, uh, driving the Union troops out of the area across the Rappahannock River in Virginia and up towards Washington. Uh, almost 17,000 Union casualties at the Battle of Chancellorsville, which was the largest in a single battle uh, thus far. Another humiliating defeat for the Union, but. The Union finally catches a break at Chancellorsville because Jackson, on the night of his greatest victory, uh, is accidentally shot by his own men. He's on a night patrol, and perhaps the greatest of the Civil War generals, uh, 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 you know, uh, Lee's right-hand man, uh, his most trusted general, uh, uh, he dies, uh, uh, and he dies uh, before. Uh, 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 a number of crucial battles, uh, uh, including one that took place six weeks later. Uh, six weeks after Chancellorsville, another battle, uh, now in July 1863, uh, as we will see when we read The Killer Angels. On that day, July 1st, 1863, Robert E. Lee gave Jackson's replacement, because Jackson is now dead, orders to capture a crucial hill during the battle. Orders which Jackson, had he been alive, almost unquestionably would have followed, but that his replacement, acting cautiously, did not. The hill wasn't taken, and because the hill was not taken, the battle was eventually lost. That battle was in a small Pennsylvania town called Gettysburg, and we'll spend Friday talking about that and that battle, the battle that turned the Civil War in the Union's favor. So we're not going to talk about that right now, uh, except to identify it as the commonly accept, accepted turning point uh, in the Civil War. Although a less celebrated battle, taking place at the same time as Gettysburg, uh, uh, at Vicksburg, Mississippi, so this is in the West, uh, combined with Gettysburg to produce that turning point. Now, Vicksburg, Mississippi, was the Confederacy's last remaining stronghold on the Mississippi River. And after months of complicated military maneuvers and a six-week siege by Union General Ulysses S. Grant, Vicksburg surrendered on July 4th, 1863, just as the Battle of Gettysburg was ending. The victory at Vicksburg gave the Union total control of the Mississippi River. It cut the Confederacy in two, and it put the North in a position to strangle the Confederacy in a vice from the West and also from the East. It also made Ulysses S. Grant, the victor of Vicksburg, into Abraham Lincoln's favorite general. Finally, a Union general who, unlike George McClellan and the others, actually fought. Lincoln now brought Grant east to command all the Union forces and to confront Robert E. Lee in Virginia. And Grant, patient and tenacious, brought superior Union forces to bear on the weakening Confederacy in 1864. 
Now, Ulysses S. Grant was a great American success story, maybe the great American success story. Uh, he graduated from West Point, didn't do particularly well there, fought in the Mexican War, uh, but was basically a failure in the pre-war uh, American army. Uh, he left the army in the 1850s, uh, 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 tried to farm, unsuccessful, tried to open a store, unsuccessful. And finally, at the start of the Civil War, in April 1861, he was working for his father-in-law uh, in a store in uh, Galena, Illinois, you know, uh, probably properly uh, humiliated. But once the war started, Grant rose quickly in the ranks of the Union Army because unlike other generals, like George McClellan, he was not afraid to take risks and he was not afraid to fight. Abraham Lincoln developed tremendous confidence in him. Uh, Grant uh, sometimes had a drinking problem, and uh, there's a story, perhaps apocryphal, that uh, when Lincoln uh, was confronted by, uh, by one of his aides saying that uh, uh, Grant was drinking too much, uh, and that there were a lot of complaints about his drinking, Lincoln said, send a bottle of Grant's favorite brand of whiskey to my other generals. I can't spare this man. He fights. But by May 1864, it seemed to an increasingly impatient North that this war would never end. Grant was now being stymied by a defensive Robert E. Lee in Virginia. By 1864, the Southern strategy was not to win a military victory. Their troops were too exhausted and too stretched thin to do that, but prolong the war as much as possible in hopes that Northern public opinion would turn against the war and lose the will to fight. And as Grant's frontal assaults on Lee's armies at the Wilderness and Spotsylvania and Cold Harbor in May and June 1864 yielded nothing but huge casualties, it seemed that this Confederate strategy might actually work, that this might actually happen, that the North would quit. These battles, the Wilderness, Spotsylvania, and especially Cold Harbor, were incredibly brutal. At Cold Harbor, Grant ordered a frontal assault, uh, uh, similar to the one Burnside had ordered in, uh, in, in December 1862. Now it's uh, June of, of, of 1864, and at Cold Harbor, Grant orders a frontal assault uh, on the Confederate lines. He lost 7,000 troops in one hour. He lost 7,000 in one hour. The, the assault was a disaster. The Union troops themselves knew that it would be a disaster. The night before, uh, the Union troops uh, uh, preparing for that frontal assault, knowing that it would come and knowing what the consequences would probably be, pinned slips of paper to their uniforms with their names and their addresses and their next of kin so their bodies could be identified. One Union soldier, writing on the night of June 5th, 1864, before the battle, wrote in his diary for June 6th, June 6th, I was killed today that was taken off his body after he was indeed killed on June 6th. So it's in this kind of atmosphere that the North is beginning to lose its will to fight this war. Northern newspapers, who are very partisan in these days, there's no, uh, there's no, uh, there's no uh, wall between editorializing and news in the newspapers of, of the 1860s. Northern newspapers began to run headlines that said, stop the war, like the war in Vietnam or even the war in Iraq. And 
there was, I think, a parallel between Confederate strategy during the Civil War and North Vietnamese strategy during the war in Vietnam, prolonging the war as much as possible and demoralizing American, or in this case, Northern, uh, population. Now, by August 1864, with Grant facing a continuing stalemate uh, in Virginia, courtesy of the wily and skillful General Robert E. Lee, calls for peace began to emanate even from some of Lincoln's Republican supporters. And I think it was at this point that Lincoln's finest moment as a president, and there were many fine ones, but his finest moment occurred. There was a glimmer of hope for a negotiated peace in August 1864, a number of informal and secret Union Confederate contacts, but the sticking point, not surprisingly, was still slavery. The Confederacy would not return to the Union without it. And this would mean, of course, repealing the Emancipation Proclamation of January 1863. Now, many of his own Republican allies, not to mention Northern Democrats who were, uh, uh, who were ambivalent about the war in the first place, they begged Lincoln to take this step and end the war by repealing the Emancipation Proclamation. And in many ways, it would have been the easy way out for Lincoln. It would end the war and hopefully restore the Union, his initial war aim. It would save thousands and maybe even hundreds of thousands of lives. And it would help his own re-election campaign, uh, 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 which was then going on in August 1864 and not going well. But Lincoln refused to do it. And refused knowing that as of August 1864, if the election was held then, he would not be re-elected and that he would be remembered as a one-term president, as a warmonger, as a murderer of young men, as a loser. Lincoln knew this, but still refused to go back and repeal the Emancipation Proclamation. Not only because he refused to go back on a promise, but because Lincoln now realized that the war had taken on a new meaning, and that America could not go back. It was now not just a war to restore the Union, but one for human freedom. Even if it cost him his career, and in August 1864 it appeared that it would, Lincoln wanted to be associated with this cause, and remembered for this cause, even if it failed. And this, I think, was one of the singular examples of political courage in the history of the American presidency, maybe the singular example. And it's one of the reasons that all subsequent occupants of the White House walk in Lincoln's footsteps and walk in his shadow. And finally, in September 1864, the fates finally began to smile on this long-suffering man. Abraham Lincoln needed a miracle, and he got one. Not in Virginia, where Grant continued to pound away at Robert E. Lee, but hundreds of miles to the south, in Georgia where Lincoln's other favorite general, General William T. Sherman, finally took Atlanta after months of battles on September 2nd, 1864. From Atlanta, Sherman cut a swath of destruction to the sea, to the Atlantic Ocean, as he moved through Georgia, burning and wrecking everything in his path until he reached Savannah, Georgia. And then, turning north, he did the same thing to much of South Carolina, making that state which Sherman and other Unionists blamed for the war in the first place, paying an especially high price for what they considered their arrogance. 
Now, this was the epitome of total war, where civilians were treated like enemy soldiers as part of the war, and where the home front was destroyed as a way of destroying the military enemy in the field. I will make Georgia howl, said Sherman, who also uttered the famous line, war is hell. And in late 1864, in Georgia, and then South Carolina, it was hell. And natives of those states have never forgotten William T. Sherman, nor have subsequent military leaders uh, forgotten him. Uh, They have adopted uh, many of his scorched earth tactics in later wars, especially World War I and World War II. But Sherman's march, in the specific context of the Civil War, had the effect of breaking the stalemate and wrecking the Confederacy's last hopes of victory, uh, uh, victory through northern war weariness. By the end of 1864, the Confederacy had only two functioning armies in the field, at least in the eastern sector, and both were starving, undersupplied, and demoralized, and racked by desertions. As the war miraculously swung the North's way, Lincoln experienced a huge rise in popularity, and a little over two months after he had been left for dead politically, swept to an overwhelming re-election victory over, of all people, George McClellan, who had been nominated by the Democrats on an anti-war platform for the presidency in November 1864. By early April 1865, uh, Richmond had finally fallen to Grant, and Lee's shrunken army was trapped near Appomattox, Virginia, by Grant. Lee's surrender on April 9, 1865, effectively ended the Civil War. And Abraham Lincoln's assassination, ironically, at the moment of his greatest triumph, only five days later, transformed this man, so reviled during so much of his presidency, turned him into a martyr who belonged, in the words of one of his cabinet members, standing at his deathbed, to the ages. Lincoln's most immediate legacy was the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, passed uh, later in 1865, which abolished slavery in the United States. But Lincoln's ongoing legacy was a new nation with new universal standards of equality and liberty, a very different one from the country that he had inherited in 1861, and one that would spend the rest of the 19th century and all of the 20th attempting to define and understand and live up to the new standards of liberty and equality that it had, under such unlikely and ironic circumstances, established during the Civil War.